true for people who are reared in Christian homes that John 3.16 is the best-known verse of Scripture in the Bible. I'm not so sure, but what in the world at large, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 has become the most well-known Scripture in the world. Matthew 7.1 says, Judge not that you be not judged. It's usually misunderstood when people quote it, but it is widely known. John 3.16 well deserves its place at the the head of memory. Usually if people have only one verse of Scripture memorized, they have John 3.16 memorized. Like you, I memorized it in the King James Version of the Bible many years ago. And so if I revert into the language of Elizabethan language, then you understand why. Years ago, I went on a mission trip to Thailand. Uh, This was in the late 1990s. Uh, I went on a mission trip to Thailand, and in our group, there was a man who who had spent his childhood in North Korea. He had lived in North Korea before the communist takeover, and so he was a fairly young man, seemed like maybe only eight or nine years old when the communists came and took uh, took over North Korea. And he fled to South Korea. There are two stories that I remember very well from this older Korean man. I'm sure that he's no longer living. But uh, two stories that I remember. One has nothing to do with my text today, but it's such a a good story I'm going to tell you. And uh, he said that one day he was sitting with his father and mother and brothers and sisters, if he had them, in church. And... uh, In the church service, there was a man who came in and whispered something to his father, and his father, I guess, nodded his head in acknowledgement, but never moved. And uh, at the conclusion of the service, uh, it was discovered that what the man had come and whispered to his father was, your house is on fire. But uh, the... The father had such respect and reverence for the worship of God that he didn't want to disrupt the service by leaving. And so he he stayed in church. And and my friend said, when we arrived home, our house was burned to the ground. But he said it never made much difference because that was the week that the communists came and took over and we had to leave everything anyway. But on the... uh, on the way out, he was trying to board a train, and uh, apparently there was an American soldier there who was trying to make sure that the wrong people never got on the train. And so my friend said to, uh, said to the soldier, let me on the train. I'm a Christian. And uh, the soldier said, you're a Christian. All right, quote John 3.16. And... Uh, The man, who was a little boy at that time, said, I knew John 3.16 as well as I knew my own name. But at that moment, I could not remember it. And so, uh, but he he was allowed to go on the train anyway. So happy ending to the story. Just to illustrate the point that uh, throughout history, John 3.16 has been so well known that at one time, at least, and probably several other times, someone said, if you're really a Christian, you'll know John 3.16. Now, I can tell you assuredly that when I learned John 3.16, I had no idea what the context of the verse was. Uh, And so 
to remind you of the context, which I began preaching last week, I'm going to begin reading from verse 1, but then I'll focus my attention only on verse 16. Before I do, let me remind you from last week that the Jews had two fundamental misunderstandings about the kingdom of God. One misunderstanding was that only Jews would be in the kingdom of God. And the second misunderstanding was being a Jew was enough to get you there. And uh, so when Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, it's, it's a pretty stark violation of what Nicodemus supposed to be an axiomatic truth, something that didn't need to be explained but could be simply accepted. And uh, so that is an important background for our understanding John 3.16. But now beginning reading with verse 1, here is the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, And bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I think there was an emphasis on that word, whoever you know, emphasizing the fact it's not just Jews, Nicodemus. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And now here is the explanation, a further explanation of that truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now that's my text, but for the the sake of understanding a point that I'm going to make, I'm going to continue reading in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen 
that his works have been carried out in God. When you have really memorized something thoroughly, then you can quote it even while you are distracted. You can quote it even while you're thinking about something else. I think that most of us have John 3.16 committed to memory to that extent. We're able to quote it, and even if we're interrupted, we're able to pick up where we left off and, uh, and continue to quote it. And uh, that is a desirable state of having a passage of Scripture memorized. It's difficult to get that far, but it is a desirable thing. But there is also a, a danger that comes along with that kind of familiarity. And that is, in the old phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. So that we do not feel the weight of it. We do not feel the wonder of it in the way that we ought One of the wonderful qualities that God has built into us as humans is that we have an enormous capacity for adaptability. We grow accustomed to things. And that's good when the thing that we are growing accustomed to is, oh, an achy finger or an achy knee that we are just willing to live with and we don't always want to be taking medicine for it or being distracted by it. We can get to the point where we grow accustomed to it. You see me rubbing the bone in my, in my hand right there. I have a broken bone right there that uh, would have required surgery to set. And uh, the, uh, the specialist said, uh, it, will, it will grow back. You'll always have a lump there, but your, your finger will go back to being almost entirely functional the way that it was. And it's right, but it hurts sometimes. I don't pay any attention to it. That's one of the wonderful things about adaptability. You just, you just grow accustomed to some things. And that, that applies not just to physical pain. That also applies to situations that are emotional distressful. Uh, the kind of distress that you feel the week that your loved one dies is unsustainable. If you, just, if you are feeling that sad for the rest of your days, then uh, you, can't, you can't go on with life. And so while you never completely get over the death of your loved one, you learn to live with the pain so that it's not constantly in the forefront of your mind. And so the capacity for adaptability and being able to acclimatize is, is a good thing. But I'm sure that when you children moved back from Ecuador, you were cold for a month because you hadn't felt cold weather for a while. Uh, we, get, we get accustomed to living in the warmth, and then when it suddenly gets cold, we, we freeze. I notice that in the springtime, after we've lived through the winter, it gets to be 56 degrees, and girls start wearing shorts, men start wearing muscle shirts. But after we've lived through the summer, we get a day of 56 degrees, and we put on sweatshirts uh, because we've grown accustomed to what we've been living in. Uh, so it's, it's, it can be good, but it also can be dangerous when we take for granted things that ought always to strike us with wonder and awe. I don't know if you've ever thought about that phrase, take for granted. There are some things that are granted. We just don't even think about the fact that the air is filled with oxygen. It must be granted and we take it for granted. We don't think about it. We just think this is one of the things that in normal life is, is granted to us. 
And uh, some of us, uh, well, some of us feel that way about the love of God. We just grow accustomed to it. And uh, so may the Lord help us today, first of all, to feel the wonder of God's love, that God so loved the world, and then to see the gift that his love prompted him to give, that he gave his only begotten son, and then let's see the wideness of God's love, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. First of all, may the Lord use my words and even things that I don't say to help you to once again feel the wonder and the awe of God's love. My two sisters are in uh, Alaska this week. They are in Denali, Denali Park. And uh, Denali gets its name from a magnificent mountain that is there. And uh, they say that the mountain is usually shrouded in mist so that only about 30% of the people who go to the park actually see Denali, the mountain. And, uh, but yesterday, they sent me a couple of photographs of Denali in all of its unshrouded glory. As they're silhouetted against a blue sky, towering high above the clouds that are nearby, but not cloaking Denali. I know from having spent time myself in the Rocky Mountains that the first few days that you're there, you can barely catch your breath. Not because of the thin air, but just because of the astounding, breathtaking beauty of the place. But then, after a few days, you kind of grow accustomed to it. And so, it is also true that only a small percentage of people who take the love of God for granted, ever see the love of God in its unshrouded, unmisted beauty, silhouetted against the the background of the other gods that are in the universe or the other false gods. But that's one way of helping us to see our God in fresh light is to contrast the God of the Bible with anything that you know about the gods of other religions. And so... Some of you may be familiar with Buddhism. Some of you may be familiar with uh, Hinduism. Some of you may be familiar with Islam. I think the pantheon of gods with which I am most familiar is the Greek and Roman pantheon. So the gods uh, Zeus and Hermes uh, and, uh, and so on. Uh, because I've, I've read a fair amount of that literature. And I can tell you, and perhaps you can tell me the same thing, that there is no God among the Greek and Roman pantheon that you could say is the God of love. The closest that you can come is Cupid. But Cupid is more of a mischievous troublemaker than a a solid God who actually can be said, this God is love. Now, love is one of those words that... uh, can also lose its punch because we, we love pizza and we love lemonade and we love the smell of flowers. And so let's just remind ourselves of uh, what it must mean when the Bible says that God is love. And there are at least three fundamental ideas that characterize a more serious kind of love that goes beyond what we mean when we say we love pizza. And I think the first idea is 
especially when we're talking about loving someone who is our equal or someone over whom we have authority, love is the intention to do good to that person. Now, that definition of love doesn't apply for our love for God. Our love for God is delighted admiration. But God's love for us is, at the very least, the intention to do us good. And so God so loved not just one nation of the world, but people from all nations of the world, that he resolved in his great heart that he would do us good. So the first thing about true substantial love is God resolved that he would do good to those upon whom he set his affection. But there's a second aspect of substantial love, and that is delight. It is not enough for us to say that we love someone if we never feel delight in that person. And uh, so when God says that he loves us, then there is a delight that God has for us. He does not merely tolerate the people that he loves. Now, there are times in all of our earthly relationships that we have to resort to uh, gritting our teeth and saying, I have promised that I would love this person, or this person is my child. I may not have made a promise, but there is just kind of an unspoken agreement that I will always love this person. And so... uh, the, the delight and the exuberance of love is not always uppermost, but I don't think that it's love if it is always absent. If you never feel any kind of, any kind of delight or pleasure in the object of your alleged love, then I don't know that it is love. I say this because of what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first three verses. Uh, This is one of those verses of Scripture that I have memorized, but I haven't memorized it so thoroughly that I can quote it while being distracted. But generally, it says something like this, Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Though I have all knowledge and I have faith so that I can remove mountains, if I don't have love, it does no good. And, uh, and then he goes on saying, if I do this good thing and if I do that good thing and I don't have love, then it's all worthless. And so in, I bring that before your attention to say that here's a man who's doing all the right things. So if love is only the resolve to do good to the person that you love, he had it. He's giving his body to be burned, giving up his possessions to the poor. He's doing the thing that needs to be done. But he says it's possible to do all of that and still not have love. And if you don't have love, then all that is worthless. And that leads me to the conclusion that I'm emphasizing now. Delight is an essential part of healthy love. Now, sometimes love might get sick and delight is not there. But that's not, that's not the way that healthy love exists. And so certainly God's love for us is a delighted love. So he he is determined, God loves, he's determined to do good to those who are the objects of his love. He also is delighted. Let that be a blessing to you today. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you may be sure that God loves you. 
and that God is delighted in you. But then there is a third factor in substantial love that I'll mention. There are more, but the third one that I'll mention today is that sometimes love reaches the place where you enter into a covenant with the one that you love. A covenant is a conditional agreement, and uh, so marriage is a covenant. It's a conditional agreement. And uh, there are other covenants that we have, but marriage is the most notable one that springs to mind. That when you love someone so much that you say, I am going to make a commitment to love you for the rest of my life, uh, for better, for worse, for good, for evil, come sickness or health, through poverty and wealth, till death do us part. So you enter into a covenant with someone. And a covenant is kind of a, a safeguard so that during the times of sickness, not just health, during the times of poverty, not just wealth, that that covenant will carry you and urge you in the right direction when your emotions are not there. And the kind of love that God has for his people is the kind of love that reaches that degree. He enters into a covenant. Not that God himself needed it to remind him when his affections were weak that he needed to continue to love the people, but uh, as an assurance to us. God has entered into an an eternal covenant within the persons of the Trinity, and now he offers the, the covenant to us, and he says, if you will repent of your sin, if you will receive my son, then you and I will be in an eternal covenant. That's how much that I love you. And so feel the wonder of it, that God is unique among all the the religions of the world as being a God who loves. And it's not some kind of uh, emotional, wishful love like Santa Claus might be supposed to have. Wish Wish that I could do something about it. But it's a substantial love that carries with it a determination to do good to those he loves, a delight in those he loves, and even he enters into an eternal covenant with those who loves, those he loves. And so here is love, fast as the ocean, and loving kindness as the flood. This is a, a great and wonderful love, towering above the hills of time, like Denali above all the lesser mountains around it. God so loved the world. Now, that's yet another facet to the wonder that we ought to feel about God's love, that God loved the world. With all that the Bible tells us about the world, the world has not been a friend of God. The world has been an enemy to God. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's very rare that someone would die for someone else, though for a righteous man, someone might possibly dare to die, it says in Romans chapter 5. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the fact that God has loved a world that actually deserves to have his, his judgment and wrath, not his love, should add yet another layer of our admiration and the wonder that we feel for God's love when we recognize that God so loved the world. Secondly, 
God's love led him to give an incredible gift. This is hinted at in one of the songs that we just sang. How great thou art. So the songwriter begins, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder like we did this morning. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. And when I see it, I sing how great thou art. And then the second stanza, which we did not sing, is when through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. That also causes me to overflow with how great thou art. And, and we feel that. Uh, the, the group of men that meets at 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings to pray for the day and for the services, someone will almost always mention, thank you, Lord, uh, for what we've seen this morning. Thank you for the rain. and Thank you that we heard the thunder and heard the rain and smelled the rain. Thank you. And uh, I, I, I love praying with people who are moved to praise because of these things that we see in nature, the, the fragrance of the flowers and the beautiful color of the flowers and the rainbows and so on, to feel so, so joyful. But then, after admiring God for His creativity and the stars and the heavenly bodies, after admiring God for the beauty of the flowers and the, the hills, then he goes into the third stanza and says, And when I think that God, His Son, not sparing... This great God, the God of the thunder, the God of the flowers, when I think that God, His Son not sparing, I scarce can take it in. I just almost can't believe that. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then, my admiration for God's love and God's greatness reaches a new height. I admired God for the stars. I admired God for the flowers. But when I see Jesus in this great gift, oh, then like never before I sing, how great thou art. When I see this great gift that his love moved him to give. and He gave, he gave his only begotten son. Now often in the Bible, the word begotten means born. So you read the genealogies and throughout the Bible and it will say so-and-so begat or begot so-and-so. It means that he fathered that child or that uh, you know, a child was born. That's the way the word begotten usually, what it usually means in the Bible. But that's not what it means when it applies to Jesus Christ because the Bible teaches that Jesus was not born from God. So what does it mean then? Well, there are times when the word that is sometimes translated begotten can mean unique. And I think that's what it means here. In fact, uh, when I first memorized this passage of Scripture in the New International Version back in the 1980s, the New International Version translated this word one and only. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. I think in subsequent editions... They revised that because probably someone criticized and said, well, we also are sons of God. And so 
It's not exactly right to say Jesus is the one and only. So I think they revised it back to something closer to what most of us had memorized, his only begotten. Uh, But you may have a translation that says something like his unique son. I think that's the idea. Jesus is a son of God in a way that we will never be the children of God. And so it, it increases the the wonder of God's love when we see that the gift of his love was that he gave his only begotten son. And then we know something about this gift that is not explicitly stated in this verse. He gave his one and only son to be a sacrifice. So on the way to, uh, on the way to, Kansas this week. I flew from Louisville to Charlotte, I think, and then from Charlotte to Kansas City. And flying out of Louisville, there were, uh, what is unusual these days, a couple of friendly people who sat beside me. Most people sit down, put on their earphones, and don't want to talk. Uh, But these ladies came. uh, I was sitting in the aisle. There were two seats towards the window. They came. They greeted me cheerfully, and so I knew they were open to conversation. And I said... uh, you ladies from Louisville? No. What have you been doing in Louisville? And Oh, we've been attending a convention. And that was probably a signal of, I don't want to tell you what we were doing here. But I pressed on. I said, what convention? And they grew solemn and they said, it was a convention of gold star mothers. And uh, gold star mothers, for those of you who may not know, are mothers who have lost a son, and I I assume a daughter, have lost a son or a daughter uh, while in service uh, in the the military. And so I said, I don't know what to say. Thank you for your sacrifice. Did your sons die in Afghanistan? And they said, no, oddly enough, uh, both of our sons died in helicopter crashes on the same day of the year, but not in the same helicopter crash, five years apart. And uh, so a couple of spiritual lessons grow out of that conversation. One, not exactly to the point that I'm making right now, but still it's a good one. Can you imagine how the rest of that trip would have been if I had said to those ladies, well... Uh, I'm sorry that they died in such a senseless way. I mean, they weren't in combat. It's nice that they honor you as gold star mothers, but uh, uh, your, your sons really died for nothing. I mean, can you imagine? Those ladies probably would have been asked to be transferred to a different seat. Or they certainly would have been cold and stony silent for the rest of the way. What kind of a brute would say something like that? And so God gives his only son. His son dies on a cross. We're sitting next to God on an airplane. And God says, I gave my son to uh, be a sacrifice for sinners. And most of the world says, well, that was a waste. I've got no interest in that whatsoever. What an insult that is to God. If you ignore this great gift that he has given and you act like it was nothing. So that's one spiritual lesson that came out of that conversation. 
And just now I'm having a hard time remembering the second one that is relative to the point that I'm making. Maybe it'll come to me in just a second. But uh, that God... Oh, oh, here it is. I remembered it. So when those ladies sent their sons off to join the military, they never knew that those boys were going to get killed. They had every hope and expectation that after three or four years, those boys are going to come home and I'm going to put my arms around them, and we're going to live life together, and they're going to have grandkids, my grandkids, and life is going to be great. They never sent their sons off into battle saying, I know he's going to get killed in a helicopter crash. But when God sent his son into the world, he knew that his son was going to be mistreated. He knew that his son was going to be uh, crucified. He knew that his son spiritually and physically was going to undergo unspeakable agonies. Now, do you see how great God's gift is? You see the gift that His love prompted Him to give? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And then let's look at the wideness of God's love. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Every word in that phrase is precious. Whosoever, whosoever is a wide, wide word. Whosoever means you. Whosoever means me. Whosoever believeth. Thank God that the word, next word that came is not whosoever is worthy would have everlasting life. But the next, came, the next word is, whosoever believeth, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believing is something that a poor man can do. Believing is something that a, that a sick man can do. Believing is something that God helping you, you can do. Whosoever believeth on Him. Salvation comes when you receive a person. Someone even in this room might be saying, I'm interested in becoming a Christian, but I know so little about Christian doctrine. Well, you have to know some Christian doctrine in order to know who Jesus is and what he did. But you don't have to be confronted with weeks and weeks and weeks of Christian teaching, of teaching about Christian doctrine in order to become a Christian. We know someone in Kansas City, uh, Jane McDonald, who says she was converted the first time she heard the gospel. She is the only person I know who, who, who claims to have been converted the first time that she heard the gospel. She was in college. I think someone confronted her with a cold turkey witnessing encounter. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what you need to do. She said, I believed it. I received it right then. I bring that up to say, what you need to know in order to become a Christian is that you are a sinner and you need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is a complete Savior that God has provided to save you. And if you will receive Jesus, it, whosoever believeth on Him, what? shall not perish, 
This fear of perishing is what drove many of us to seek salvation in Christ. We heard teaching about hell, and it scared us deeply, as it ought to. God is a God of justice. God is a God who will judge those who remain in rebellion against him. Hell is indescribably terrible. But whoever believeth in him won't go there. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. Now that's a, that's a great salvation just right there. You remember, as I remember, when I was under fear of going to hell, afraid to go asleep at night, afraid to go to sleep at night for fear that I would die or Jesus would come back and I would go to hell. If while under that kind of fear, the Lord had come and said, you know, if you just believe in Jesus... I'll let you out of hell. You'll just die like an animal. You won't have any kind of consciousness after death. You'll just be released from hell. I think I would have taken that deal. I'll do anything to get out of hell. I just don't want to have endless existence in misery. It would be better to have no existence than to have that. But God doesn't offer that kind of salvation that consists only in you shall not perish. He adds on something that is explained elsewhere in the scriptures. You have everlasting life. You enter into a relationship with God that is the essence of of exquisitely pleasurable life. It is what God intended human beings to enjoy and what human beings would have enjoyed if it had not been for the great rebellion and our ongoing participation in rebellion against God. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the essence of eternal life is not only unceasing existence. It is that, but it's not only that. It's not just quantitative. It's also qualitative. It is life and life more abundantly that Jesus came to bring. And whoever believes in Jesus Christ is delivered from the penalty of sin because the penalty of sin has been borne by Jesus. So God in his justice is able to forgive sinners and not compromise his justice because the penalty has been paid by Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus and then God is also perfectly legitimate in granting righteousness and the reward of righteousness to those who believe in Jesus because Jesus our substitute lived out a perfect human righteousness during his days on earth and now God transfers that perfect human righteousness to everyone who believes in Jesus so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I said that everlasting life is not mere quantity of life. It's not merely existing without end. But that's a pretty sweet aspect of it, that you're going to live forever having a body that is perfectly suited for your soul, that will not have aching knuckles or painful knees. You will have a glorified body and you will be blessed with the full enjoyment of God, both in body and in soul, throughout all eternity. 
and when we've been there 10,000 years, or when we've been there 10 million years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Eternity is not diminished with the passage of time. And when you believe, you are granted everlasting life. It doesn't commence when you get to heaven. Your everlasting life commences when you receive Jesus, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Even then, you are, giving, you are given life that the Bible describes as everlasting. How can it be everlasting? Through all the fluctuations and vicissitudes of our, <clears throat> our lives that are sometimes, <coughs> sometimes cold and heartless and sometimes hot. How can God grant us everlasting life when we are so up and down? The answer is because our everlasting life is based on the covenant that he made with Jesus. And the extension of that covenant has now been made to us. I love you so much that I've entered into a covenant. I gave my son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Won't you even today... If you don't have the assurance that you have everlasting life, won't you today, with the tiny faith that you might have, just say, I will receive Jesus. I believe on Jesus. Just there while you are sitting, you don't even have to close your eyes and bow your head, but just think the thought as a prayer to God. God, I want to receive your gift. I see this morning like I've never seen it before what a What a great sacrifice it was. I don't want to be a brute sitting beside gold star mothers who says your sacrifice is meaningless. I want to appreciate the sacrifice that you gave so that I might be reconciled to you. May that process begin this morning, Lord. Receive me for Jesus' sake. Amen. Jim Bob, come lead us in a concluding hymn.